Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Thank you for being here to uh, worship with us at the Vista. As always, really, really glad to have you. Um, I didn't say this in first service, but yesterday my, my six-year-old comes running into our kitchen. And he looks up at me and goes, Dad, is it true that Santa got coronavirus and he's not bringing any presents this year? <laughs> I was like, where did you hear that? Colt, Colt told me. So it was just one of those things where I was like, older brothers. You know, when you have older brothers and there's a drastic age gap between your kids, that's the kind of stuff you deal with. Uh, You never know what the older brothers are going to tell the little man. So uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy happy to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, we're in the second week of our Advent series, um, and we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40 this morning, Isaiah chapter 40. Um, as Austin mentioned last week, we're following the, the lectionary text for Advent this year. And so all of our Advent sermons will be out of the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Old Testament book of Isaiah. Austin did a great job last week of launching us into our Advent series. Um, and we're going to pick up there Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah is a prophet. So a prophet in the Old Testament was someone that spoke on behalf of God to God's people. And usually their message was sort of a mixed bag. So their message was often, um, it had some really hard, difficult things that people did not want to hear. Um, there was a lot of despair and discouragement in much of what they said. So God's people, the nation of Israel, they had sinned greatly. Their iniquity was great, as the scripture says. And so God was disciplining his people. And uh, the prophet was basically t- saying that because of your iniquity, because of your sin, there's going to be this punishment Specifically, that was going to, going to be that they were going to be taken over by, uh, by Babylon and then many of them hauled off into exile. That was going to be a punishment. And so uh, that's, a, that's a difficult thing for a prophet to come and, and tell people that, hey, you're going to be removed from your homeland. You're going to be strangers, foreigners, aliens, outside, outsiders in a foreign land for a season. At the same time, the prophet also brought good news In fact, all of uh, Isaiah in particular, many of the prophets, they're sort of conditioned with this messianic hope or expectation. So there was always the promise that, listen, um, there's going to be a savior. There's going to be a Messiah who is going to usher in his kingdom, um, and and it's going to to get better. That was always the promise. And so some of our Advent readings, um, as we get closer to Christmas, they're out of the prophet Isaiah, where there is a promise that there's going to be a savior, there's going to be a, a redeemer. And so all of the text of Isaiah is sort of conditioned with this messianic hope and messianic expectation. Now, we're going to be in chapter 40. We're going to look at the first 11 verses, and it really is a good, it's good news. It's a a prophecy of good news. They've heard the bad, they've heard the the Babylonian exile and all this stuff that's going to happen, and now there's this shift where now it's going to be, it's going to be good news of, of comfort for God's people. And I just want to walk through the text with you, point out three sort of promises that God is making to his people. And then I want to look at what does that mean for you and for me? Did God deliver on those promises? And what, is, what does that mean for, for you and me? So here we go. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 1. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to them and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, And that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. 
make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every uh, valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." You might notice right there in the middle of that in verse 3, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That is a verse mentioned in the New Testament, specifically uh, talking about John the Baptist. You might remember John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus's sort of crazy, weird cousin, right? He, he lived in the wilderness. He wore camel's hair and a big leather belt. He, he usually screamed and yelled at people. He, he had a weird diet. The Bible says he ate locust and wild honey. And I've said before, that'll probably make you a little weird if your diet consists of bugs and sugar. That was John the Baptist. He was just a rather odd guy, but his role was to be the forerunner for Jesus, for the Messiah. And so the way, the picture that we're given in the Old Testament, a lot of times when a king was going to be traveling, they would send ahead of the king a messenger. And the messenger's job was to make sure the people knew that the king was going to be coming through. So they could prepare, they could get ready He was also to make the path straight. If there was any potholes or anything, any obstructions to clear the road of of, of any obstructions, to, to make sure the bridges were in working order, to make ready the path for the king that was going to be coming. And so you can kind of see uh, that's the role of John the Baptist. He comes preaching repentance and he's from the wilderness and he's making the path ready for the Lord. And so this little obscure verse, Isaiah 40, verse 3, speaking of John the Baptist. But essentially, as I read the first five verses of Isaiah 40, what jumps out to me is this promise from God innate there in the text that, look, their situation is going to change. Their situation is going to get better. It's been bad. Babylonian captivity, they're outsiders, they're strangers, they're foreigners in this this other land. And God's essentially making this promise, like every valley's lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground becomes level. The glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. There's God making this promise to his people that their situation, or you might say their position, is going to change. Things are not always going to be as they are. That's a great promise for us today, isn't it? I mean, 2020. 2020, all that all that's, it's just been a, it's been a crazy year. I mean, at this time last year, none of us knew what coronavirus was. None of us were wearing masks. There was no social distancing going on. It's been a rather awkward year. You can watch the news for yourself. You see the spikes in cases again, beginning to rise, even in our own county. Hospital beds are full. People are dying. People have lost jobs. I mean, it's been tough. And as I read this this week, I just thought, man, that promise for them back then when things were difficult is, is a, is a, It's a good word for us today, like, if anything's true about life, it's that things change. And if you're in a really difficult spot, if there's hurt and there's pain and there's heartbreak and failure, the comforting thing for me to know, man, is that that life changes, that our situation's going to get better, our situation's going to improve. Specifically, God's talking about his people, the position they found themselves in. They were the low man on the totem pole, man. They were outsiders, foreigners, strangers, and he's saying, look... There's going to be a shift. There's going to be a change. A Messiah is going to come. Your position in the land is going to get better. It's going to improve. It's going to change. Man, what a a great promise. What a great promise. Well, let's look at the next section. What's another promise he makes? Beginning in verse 6, he says this. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? 
All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Well, that doesn't sound really comforting, right? You and I, we're like grass, and we are withering and fading away. Merry Christmas, everybody, right? That's what he's reminding us of. We are literally withering and fading away. You and I, from the moment we take our first breaths, we are withering and fading away. You and I are closer to death right now than we were when we walked in here this morning. Again, Merry Christmas, right? We're, we're withering and fading away, but here's the promise. Look at the next verse, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of our God stands forever. The second promise here is the promise of God's word. The promise of God's word. And listen, a lot of times this verse is used to talk about all of Scripture. Maybe you've heard it talked about in that regard. That the word of God, meaning Scripture, does not ever change. And while, just so you don't think I'm a heretic, I believe that, by the way. God's word does not change. What he's specifically talking about here is this specific word of God. That when God makes a promise, God's going to deliver on that promise. When God says something's going to happen, something's going to happen. All right? So God's word is going to stand the test of time. God's word is sure. God's word, um, again, he's made this promise that there's going to be a Messiah, that their position is going to change. And what he's saying here in the middle of this, of this prophecy is, if I've made a promise, I'm going to keep my promise. My word is sure. My word will last. My word will stand the test of time. Think about it. Things that last, things that stand the test of time are rare, are they not? They're rare. I mean, whatever you get for Christmas in a few weeks, I promise you at some point, whatever you get for Christmas will, will be trash at some point. It just will. Whatever you get at some point down the road, it's going to be trash. It's going to end up in the garbage. It's going to, it's going to end up in a landfill or be burned or, or, or lost or whatever. Whatever you get. Okay, think about the nicest thing, the thing you hope for. I'm telling you, one day it will be trash. Now, you may be thinking, no, no, we're, you know, we're giving family heirlooms. They're going to be passed down. It's going to remain forever. Here's the thing about family heirlooms. At some point down the line, somebody else that you don't know and maybe hasn't been born yet, they're going to think it's trash, right? They're not going to want that thing that is so precious and valuable to you. I promise you. Uh, I have my grandmother's china. Um, in 20 years of marriage, we've used it one time. It sits in a box. And I'll probably pass it down to one of my kids one day. Or, but I'm telling you, I, I know that at some point, someone in my family line is going to go, why are we keeping this? Why do we keep dishes in a box that we never use, right? Even the most precious, valuable things, either to you or to someone after you, are going to end up being trash, right? If you have kids, you know this, this happens even faster. Jonah talked about this a few weeks ago in the last week of our Grateful series. My kids will ask for stuff for Christmas, for birthdays, just I want to bless them and we'll give them something really nice and it's fun for what, like a week? And then, and then they're like, I'm bored. <laughs> You're bored? We got all kinds of stuff to do. I'm just, I'm bored. That's, that is the human heart right there. In a nutshell, that's the human heart, right? Things don't last. Stuff doesn't last. And so there's this comforting text right in the middle of Isaiah 40 where he's like, hey, everything fades away. The grass withers. The flower fades. It's not going to last. But take this to the bank. God's word, when God makes a promise, it will last. It will stand the test of time. It will be sure. And that's just this comforting word for God's people in a difficult situation. 
God's word will last. Well, there's another promise here, verses 9 through 11. The prophet says, Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and greatly lead those, gently lead those who are with young. The final promise here is the promise of God's presence. The promise of God's presence specifically as a good shepherd. God says, look, your position, your situation is going to change. It's going to get better. It's going to be different. It's not always going to be the way that it is. I make a promise. You can take it to the bank. My word is sure. And then finally, um, we have this promise that God is going to show up. There's the presence of God specifically as a good shepherd to his people. So last week, Austin mentioned that Isaiah reminds us that God is a good father. And he looked at this prayer where the prophet starts out and the prayer is rather, it's rather blunt and blatant. It's sort of blaming God in a lot of ways, kind of defiant. And then there's the shift in the middle of the prayer where it goes from uh, defiant and blamey to confession and repentance. And it seems like the change takes place when Isaiah remembers that God is a good father. That was last week, right? God is a good father. And we can think of God as a good father. Man, it just sort of changes things, doesn't it? Well, this morning, Isaiah is reminding us that God is also a good shepherd, that God's going to show up as a good shepherd, that he is going to be a good shepherd to his people. And we'll unpack that a little bit more here in just, in just a minute. So there's the promises, right? There's this positional change that's going to take place. Your situation is not going to stay the same. There's the promise that God's word is, sh- is sure, it is true, you can take it to the bank, it's not going to wither and fade away, he's not going to forget about it. God's word, God's word will, will, will happen. And then finally, the promise of his presence as a good shepherd. Now, here's the question for us. Did God come through on these promises? And what does that mean for you and for me? Did God deliver on those promises? And what does that mean for you and for me? Because here's the thing. Um, if, if God is a promise keeper, the best way or the best indicator, if God or if anyone is a promise keeper, is to look and see, have they kept their promises, right? If you're going to make a promise to me, that's great, but the best way for you to show me that you're a promise keeper is to actually be someone who delivers on your promise. So we need to ask ourselves, look, did God deliver on the promises? Because if not, then we can kind of disregard any other promises that God might make if he didn't deliver. And then secondly, what is, if God did deliver, what does that mean for you and for me? Let's relook at them really quick. First of all is the promise of a situational or positional change that things are going to change for you and for me. Look with me, if you would, at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I love this text. Love, love, love it. One of my favorite texts in all of the Bible. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. These are believers, many of which were Gentiles. They would have been considered outsiders, right? Foreigners, strangers, outsiders, right? And so this text is so... Um, just unbelievably awesome. I get chills when I read this text. It talks about this positional change. Listen to what he says. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. 
he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's pretty bleak, right? But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Then down in verse 19, he says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Love that text, right? Because that text basically uh, describes for you and for me our positional change. That in Christ, you and I have a positional change. We were outsiders. We were strangers. We were aliens. No hope without God. And now, because of the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross for our sin, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, right? So we're no longer outsiders, strangers, aliens, foreigners. We are now heirs. We are sons and daughters of God. We're a part of this family. Do you see the positional change that takes place because of Jesus? Did Jesus deliver on the promise? Absolutely, he delivered on the promise. In Christ, we have this positional change. I love this text. It's such a great promise for them. It's a great promise for you and for me today. Jesus brings this positional change, and we go from outsiders to insiders because of his work on our behalf. We have positional change because of Jesus. Well, what about the next promise, the promise of God's word, that God would deliver on his word specifically to bring a Messiah? Now, you and I have the benefit of kind of hindsight, right? Like we get to look on the other side of the prophecy, and we get to look back on history, and we know that God delivered on that promise, I mean, it's why we celebrate Christmas. It's why we're doing an Advent series every single year, because God delivered on his promise. We'll look at it really quick in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, these are the beginning pages of the New Testament. Um, Again, the Old Testament was sort of preparing for Christ, prophecies about Christ, setting the stage for the coming of this Messiah. And then we get the opening pages of the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are then about the life and ministry of Christ. They are the biographies of the life of Jesus. And so in the opening pages of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, we read this. She, that is Mary, verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There is the fulfillment of the promise. A Savior is going to come. A Messiah is going to come. God doesn't forget his promise. I'm sure generations had come and gone and thought, Maybe God forgot. You know, maybe that promise isn't sure. Well, again, you and I have the benefit of going, no, God did deliver. God did deliver on the promise. Jesus is born. And again, it's why we celebrate. It's why we do Advent. It's why we we have Christmas. Because God delivered on that promise. And then finally, there's the promise of God's presence, specifically as a good shepherd. Isaiah 40, God will come. He will be a good shepherd to his people. Did God deliver on that promise? Did a Savior or Messiah come as a good shepherd? Look with me, if you would, at John chapter 10. 
The Gospel of John, chapter 10. Jesus is speaking. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Over in verse 27, he continues the sheep analogy here. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. God says, this Messiah, this Savior is going to come, and he's going to be a good shepherd. And then we have Jesus in John chapter 10 saying, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. Man, again, that is such great news for you and for me. I know a lot of times when we think of a shepherd, I don't know what image comes to mind when you think of a shepherd. A lot of times I think of a shepherd maybe as like this probably older, a little more feeble. You always see him walking with a cane or a staff. And I know a lot of times it's like they use those to kind of help with the sheep. But, you know, you always, it always just seems like some feeble old weaker person that needs the staff to help get along a little bit. And so as a result, we often think of shepherds as more weak, maybe more passive. Um, but that's not the imagery that the Bible gives us when talking about shepherds. I'd remind you in... Back in Isaiah 40, right before he says that God's going to show up and be a good shepherd, verse 10 says God's going to show up in might, in might, in power. His recompense is before him. It's this this verse of great strength. Then in verse 11, it's like he's going to be a shepherd. He's going to carefully tend his flock. Sometimes we may be quick to think this idea of sort of meekness or weakness when it comes to a shepherd, but again... In John 10, when Jesus says, um, I'm the shepherd, he doesn't say, man, I'm the good shepherd because I'm, I'm really warm and friendly and I give really good hugs. And No. <laughs> he says, I'm the good shepherd because when the wolf comes, I fight off the wolf. The hired hand doesn't care about the sheep and so he runs, but I'm the shepherd. I'm going to stand and I'm going to fight and I'm going to protect. I'm going to sacrifice. I was reminded uh, when it comes to shepherding, there's so many different patriarchs and, 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 and people in the Old Testament that were shepherds. You know, King David, before he was king, he was a shepherd boy. You remember? In 1 Samuel 17, this little shepherd boy approaches King Saul and he says, hey, I'll fight the giant Goliath. And Saul goes, why should I let you go fight him? Why should I let you, little shepherd boy David, go fight big giant Goliath? And David, if you remember his response, you can read it in uh, 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 31. He says, I'll tell you why. You should let me go fight because I'm a shepherd. And when the lion or the bear comes along and takes one of the sheep, I go and I face the lion and the bear and I get the sheep back. And this is awesome. This is great Old Testament language. He says, and then when the lion and the bear turns on me, I grab him by his beard and I strike him till he's dead. Any, any debate on who's more manly ends right there, right? Like if you grab a lion or a bear by their mane and beat them till they're dead, 
uh, you're more manly. Like you, you get the man card for life. Like you win any debate about weakness or power, okay? It's awesome language. It's awesome. It just shows the might and the power. Shepherds had to be courageous and bold. Shepherds had to be strong. This is the picture of our good shepherd. It's not a weak, passive, you know, person. It's, it's someone that comes in might and strength and courage and boldness. A few years ago, I preached a sermon on John chapter 10, and I, I found my notes this week um, as I talked about shepherding. And I just wanted to remind you of the roles um, of a shepherd. A shepherd didn't just have like one little thing, kind of keep the sheep together. No, no, no. Even in just John chapter 10, if you go through the text, you're going to see that a shepherd leads the sheep. A shepherd feeds and provides for the sheep. The shepherd um, disciplines the sheep when necessary, when they go astray. The shepherd searches for and finds the sheep when necessary. The shepherd uh, fights for the sheep, like we already talked about. The shepherd then unifies the flock, it says, brings the sheep together and keeps them close. The shepherd sacrifices himself for the sheep, which is what Jesus does for us. The shepherd then brings assurance to the sheep. He says, no one can snatch them out of my hands. They're mine. They belong to me. No one's taking them from me. There's great assurance provided by the shepherd. All of these things are roles of the shepherd. And the good news for us is that God says, I'm going to show up. And when I show up, I'm a good shepherd. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. And the reason that's good news for you and for me is because, again, the shepherd comes with boldness and might. Man, God is bigger. He is stronger. He is more able. Your fears, your mistakes, your failures, whatever you're going through, wherever you find yourself in life this morning, whatever's happening in your life, listen, it's good news. It's good news that Jesus is our good shepherd. And these promises made back in Isaiah 40, Man, they were good news for them. Then they are good news for us now. That our position, we have in Christ, we have this positional change where we go from outsiders to insiders, from strangers, foreigners, aliens, to sons and daughters of a holy God. We have the promise that God's word, man, when God makes a promise, he's going to deliver. God is a promise keeper. And then we have the promise that he is our good shepherd. He is our good shepherd in, in every way imaginable. So we celebrate Christmas, right? As we do all the things this time of year that we always do, we, we decorate trees and we wrap gifts and we unwrap gifts and we eat stuff and we invite people over and man, let it be a great reminder. Let it be a great reminder for you that God is a promise keeper, that God is, always delivers on his promises, that you in Christ have this positional change and that he is our good shepherd. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful today that you are a good shepherd to us. And God, that you, you lead us and you provide for us. You discipline us when necessary. You protect us. You fight for us, God, and ultimately you sacrifice yourself on our behalf. We're grateful today for a good shepherd. We're grateful, God, that you are a promise keeper that you have demonstrated over and over and over again that you deliver on your promises, that your word is sure. Father, we're grateful today that in you, our position has changed. And I pray this Christmas, God, we would be reminded, we would remember that truth and that promise and we would be unbelievably grateful. God, that it might drive us to be worshipers. We thank you for your word. 
that stands the test of time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.